Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 145, December 25th to December 31st, 1863. First, may I say officially happy holidays to all listening. This episode kicking off on Christmas and then taking us into the new year. Last week, we had a scattering of subjects. We talked about Loretta Haneda Velasquez, Civil War photography, and support functions within the Army. In these subjects, we introduced probably the most famous Civil War photographer in Matthew Brady, and also talked about Provost Marshals, which we have mentioned in the past, but not really talked too much about in terms of what they did for both the Union and Confederate armies and home fronts. This week, of course, we're going to try to get into the spirit of the season by talking about the role Christmas played in the Civil War. We will also close out with a brief reflection on 1863, but before we do that, we need to very briefly drop in and see what's going on in East Tennessee. Of course, before we do that, we need to talk a little bit about the Patreon content and what we have going on there. We did have, hopefully by the time this episode is posted, we'll have the movie review that was Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter a little bit of a different look shall we say in terms of these movie reviews that we've been doing and we will also be releasing some movie reviews we'll be doing a back-to-back look at uh, something that we we haven't really done yet we'll be looking at The Beguiled and that has two movies a older Clint Eastwood version and a Colin Farrell version Uh, that is a little bit more recent, so we'll be taking a look at both of those and kind of comparing them and uh, talking about them maybe a little bit. So that's something we haven't necessarily done yet, so if that sounds like something that would interest you, there is a link to the Patreon in the show description. And of course, all those proceeds do go toward the general upkeep of the show. So we have the Battle of Mossy Creek on December 29th. When we last left off in that region, Longstreet and his command were staying put. They had been rebuffed at Bean Station from springing a trap on the Union Cavalry. Samuel Sturgis, who you recall we mentioned as taking over for Shackelford, now held this command, and would be tasked with probing toward the Confederates. It should not be too surprising to think that Longstreet in East Tennessee was a problem. Remember that Lincoln had wanted to completely liberate this area from Confederate control, as most of the people were not for the South. As we have mentioned, even the Union soldiers realized just the remote nature of the land and the poverty that many suffered, so they did not necessarily connect with the Federal cause too much either. We do have some instances when we talked about irregular warfare, Uh, in terms of this area and how there are all these roving bands. And in some instances, they're even more outlaws than anything else. They're not really for either side. They're just trying to sort of survive. And that is pretty interesting when you look at what these Confederates and the Union troops say about the region. In particular, the Union troops are pretty harsh when they're marching through the region, and maybe it's because there's no sustenance for them to forage upon as they're moving toward Chattanooga and then ultimately into Georgia, but they're not particularly nice in their 
recordings of the people and their quality. So uh, there is kind of this middle ground nature of this area. And there's a lot of bushwhacking that's going to be going on, and especially in here and in Kentucky, and it's going to continue even after the war. Sturgis would advance toward the Confederates, but would fall back toward a place called Mossy Creek on December 28th. Having divided his forces, Sturgis seemed like a good target for William Martin, who had taken over for Wheeler and currently commanded the cavalry attached to Longstreet's command. Now, we have mentioned Martin, but we have not talked too much about him. He was born in Kentucky, but moved to Mississippi, where he practiced law before the war. Martin had commanded the Jeff Davis Legion, which by 1863 was going to be under the command of Wade Hampton, comprised of companies from several states, including Mississippi and Alabama. Martin would serve well under Jeb Stewart, participating in the Seven Days Campaign. His transfer to Bragg's army would be seen as an effort to instill some discipline into the otherwise unruly Confederate cavalry under Wheeler. Remember we talked about how there's a raid that Wheeler does in connection with the siege around Chattanooga, and there could have been more of an opportunity for the Confederate cavalry to really strike a blow at the Union army, especially when they're in a position where uh, they're in already in dire straits in the city itself, but the cavalry becomes undisciplined and then there's a counterattack and obviously uh, there's nothing that comes out of Wheeler's raid. Martin is going to go on to command a division under Wheeler and after the war practice law as well as serve in the state legislature. His 2,000-man brigade would push Sturgis all the way back from their advanced position past Mossy Creek. The Union commander would call in his scattered troops, providing the necessary strength to stabilize the line. A countercharge would then break the Gray Cavalry, pushing the enemy all the way back to Panther Creek, their relative starting point. While this action sounds like a smaller-scale affair, the Union Army did suffer around 100 casualties. I've seen a variety of estimates for the Confederate loss, which is unknown, but likely more than their Yankee counterparts. For the time being, Longstreet would remain near Dandridge, Tennessee. Both sides stalemated in the winter weather. Speaking of the weather outside being frightful, let's talk a little bit about Christmas during the war. But to do that, let's talk a little bit about the Christmas traditions. It's hard to imagine today that some of the Christmas traditions were relatively new in 1860s America, but the nation as a whole was new, and of course the various things we associate with the holiday are being pulled in from a variety of different sources. Of course, the Christmas tree was German, and while German immigrants were having Christmas trees, these would not be popular until the 1800s, and neither would decorations, these not being mass-produced until after the war. St. Nicholas, while a bishop in the town of Myra under Diocletian in the 300s, would be a Dutch tradition coming from the various legends surrounding the ancient clergyman. One such claim was that gold coins fell out of St. Nicholas's bag or pockets while he was delivering gifts to his flock, falling into stockings hung up by the fire. Obviously, that sounds a lot like if you ever 
have hung a stocking as part of your holiday traditions. In Holland, St. Nicholas would deliver gifts to children, but he was also accompanied by a darker entity called Black Peter, who would punish the children who were not good. Holly and Ivy do have roots in Roman custom, but these, as well as a Yule log, were English in their arrival to America. In fact, a Yule log was supposed to allow a household to not work so long as it burned. So obviously, if you are a laborer, you are going to want to keep that puppy going. Caroling was also something that was gaining traction in the New World, although if you look into the darker connotations of we wish you a Merry Christmas, then maybe you would not welcome carols to your doorstep. It would maybe also interest you to know that there was an early American tradition of celebrating Christmas with gunpowder, as I'm sure some of you have all at least heard some fireworks going off around the holidays. Overall, it's interesting that the South embraced Christmas a little more than those states in the North. The first three states to officially recognize Christmas as a holiday were Louisiana, Arkansas, and Alabama. Not all of the motives were entirely religious or festive, as holding festivities on plantations that included in some part the enslaved was a potential way to curry favor and placate the otherwise hostile population. While gift-giving was around for some time as part of the holiday, there was also not a quite-so-generous view on giving out gifts, once again to act the part of benevolent master. Remember that those in the South were extremely worried about slave insurrections, so getting into the spirit of the season probably seemed like a necessity at times. Overall, though, especially in the South, there was a tradition of giant feasting, where the women of the household would organize the event probably much in the same way we still do today. This tradition, while not really American, did go all the way back to Jamestown. We should also point out that A Christmas Carol was a popular book, having been written by Charles Dickens, so they were really missing out on a Muppet Christmas, but at least there's that. Remember, too, that the Victorian England was in vogue in the States, so who better to be popular than Dickens and his classic book? In 1861, Christmas would see Lincoln and his cabinet debate not Charles Dickens, but the Trent Affair, as the nation was very close to having England come into the war in some capacity. In the meantime, soldiers would write home about their experiences on the front, getting some kind of care package or extra treat lifted spirits. Here we have a couple accounts of soldiers writing on Christmas Day. Christmas Day. Many happy returns to you and my dear mother and precious little daughter. And long before the coming of another anniversary, may the storm clouds which now hover about us have been succeeded by the pure light of love of peace and righteousness. This is my hope, but whether it will be realized within the time specified and by whom is known only to him who disposes all things in infinite wisdom and according to his own great pleasure. Of the ultimate success of our cause I have no doubt, but I am persuaded that the struggle will not be without privation, and it may be great personal danger and perhaps death to many and to those immediate keeping is committed the defense of which we all hold dear in life and sacred in death. So obviously this individual is writing about Christmas and kind of waxing poetic a little bit here about 
the cause and whatnot and, and how everything is still righteous. Here we have an account from actually Robert Gold Shaw, and this is at the time where he was actually a lieutenant. It is Christmas morning, and I hope as happy and merry one for you all, though it looks so stormy for our poor country, one can hardly be in a merry humor. My Christmas Eve has been very much like other eves during the last six months. On a whole, I have passed quite a pleasant night, though what our men call the forepart of it was principally occupied in taking care of two drunken men. One of them was a broken pate, and in tying a sober one to a tree. After this was over, I did a great deal of reading, and towards 10 o'clock a.m., had some toast and coffee. Having previously invited my sergeant to take a nap so that I might not be troubled by hungry eyes and made to feel mean, for there wasn't enough to give away. The drummer, who with the sergeant of the guard, for some reason which I never discovered, sits and sleeps in the officer's tent, kept groaning in his sleep, and I couldn't help imagining that this groan always came in just as I took a bite of toast or a large grub of coffee. This diminished my enjoyment, and when he suddenly said, Martha, there isn't any breakfast, I was certain my proceedings were influencing his dreams. It began to snow around midnight, and I suppose no one ever had a better chance of seeing Santa Claus, but as I had my stocking on, he probably thought it not worth his while to come down to the guard tent. So there we have Robert Goldshaw kind of talking a little bit about Christmas and the traditions, at least a little bit, obviously getting drunk. Soldiers probably did that a lot around the holidays, right? And then also... Even in this time, if you're getting a care package or you're getting uh, the means to be able to celebrate the holiday, you know, there's always individuals who probably are not quite having that opportunity. So, of course, there are those less fortunate. Here we have some talk about festivities, and every now and then we had festivities associated with the holiday. Christmas began this morning before daylight with me, two glasses of eggnog, came for each before we had out of bed, which took away our appetites for breakfast. Then the reveille began to beat, when a large party of infantry seized tin pans and everything that could rattle or jingle about the quarters, and we followed the band all the through the regiment, singing and tin panning the tune of Dixie. It's been a long time since I have heard or made such a racket. The grand event of the day was a regimental mock parade, which came off at 10 o'clock. All the companies turned out in full dress, with officers chosen from the privates in the ranks. One of the infantry boys acted as colonel, and imitated him very well. Another of our men was dressed as a woman with a cocked hat to represent the major, who was nicknamed Nancy. You know, I dressed in Lieutenant Clewis's uniform, and stuffed out with Mrs. Turner's pillows, had command of our company. King was lieutenant, everything went off in the best manner. The men all acted their parts, seriously as though it were a real parade and the colonel and the officers who took no part in their performance but that of spectators seemed to very much amused. Colonel Ingersoll seemed to think that the burlesque of the major was rather too severe, and I think he sent a word to him he had better retire from the field. However, he was there long enough for everybody to see, recognize, and laughed at the character. The day passed without anything serious happening to our regiment. A number are drunk, and there have been a few small fistfights, but nobody hurt. The regulars, though, have had at least one bloody row, and several laid up with bloody heads, of whom is reported to be dying tonight. I mustn't close my letter without giving you a little description of our Christmas dinner. Bob Wire, who presides over the last chance mess, advised to dine, and a grand dinner it was to tell you. There's actually a bill of fare here that includes 
cold turkey, roast beef, pigeon pie, rice, eggs, bread, mince pie. There's one kind of cake. I don't know. It doesn't list what kind of cake it was. <laughs> and another kind of cake, and that's also on here. Uh, and that is verbatim what, what's written here. Port wine, sherry wine, pepper sauce. There's a lot of interesting things on here. Every one of the above dishes was there, and more I can eat and remember. Then there were toasts all around. My toast. The last chance may the bizarre mess. Never fare worse than when they took the last chance for Christmas dinner. So obviously there is opportunity for some feasting, at least amongst the soldiers. They seem to have a pretty good turnout here. And obviously there are festivities. You know, we talked a little bit about, say, the Irish Brigade as well and, and St. Patrick's Day, how they do racing and whatnot. And you're going to see similar things for the Christmas holiday as well. Well, some soldiers were interested in festivities in terms of some of the activities. Others were more concerned about getting their hands on some spirits to help things make jolly. There is one account I have seen of soldiers even trying to search through the valuable care packages in order to liberate some whiskey. Other soldiers were simply happy not to be drilling, as in 1861 there actually was a lot of. There were those who still had an extreme zeal for the cause, as one Kentucky Confederate wrote, December 25th, 1861, the birth of Christ, our Redeemer finds our country struggling, and the holy cause of liberty, with the vile horde of robbers and assassins sent to burn and destroy by their master, Abraham Lincoln, who occupies the chair at Washington. Remember, throughout the war, there is imagery of the Yankee horde, and they're seen as more invaders. 1862 would be different than 1861, as you can imagine, the war had changed in terms of casualties and major battles. In fact, Christmas would see campaigning in the form of the December battles at Fredericksburg and then also the December into January battle at Stones River. Rhetoric would change to remembering the fallen and shift to a more melancholy tone of missing soldiers who were still not home by Christmas, as many probably thought they would be. There were also those who maybe thought they would get to head home on leave, and not so with the army still jostling and operating as such. Still, the activities would continue, with one Alabama soldier in Bragg's army writing, We have tried to make a Christmas of it here. We have had foot races, wrestling, and baseball playing. All the officers in our brigade ran a foot race in rare time we had of it. But campaigning and hard lives on the march would rear their heads, especially for the Union Army with one soldier writing. This is Christmas, and what a contrast between our Christmas and those who are home in good, comfortable houses, with plenty to eat and good beds to sleep in, and good nurses when sick. The measles, mumps, chicken pox, smallpox, and about everything else has broken loose and taken hold of the boys. One account lists the Orphan Brigade having to witness the execution of deserter, again showing the harsh realities of soldiers' life. North Carolinian would write about the previous year in 1862. Christmas, what a crowd of bygone associations crowd upon the mind, upon this almost universal holiday. It seems to be a mile post to mark the intervals as we travel back to the days of infancy. Christmas in camp was, for a holiday, an extraordinary dull time. It reminded me of a quiet Sunday. Our commanders were kind enough to dispense with all but necessary duties today. It was a warm and beautiful day. Nature seemed to smile upon this war, afflicted land of ours. So obviously, the difference is, is that in 1861, there's a little bit more in terms of festivities and in this more melancholy, as we mentioned, tone. 
there's a little bit less of that. Another account would show Whiskey actually being acquired by South Carolina troops and chaos erupting thereafter, with a soldier impersonating an officer. But there would be more accounts that are kind of depressing, because they really don't play into the fanfare. Instead, simply saying nothing was happening, and simply army fare was all they had in terms of food. Even in 1862, the beginnings of inflation were starting to begin in the South, with a War Department clerk writing that turkeys were going to sell for $11, which was quite the sum. By 1863, the same clerk would say that it was not safe to even leave the house, as there had been murders and robberies, and that he would not be getting a turkey, as it was no time for feasting. Frederick Cavada, who was Lieutenant Colonel of the 14th Pennsylvania captured at Gettysburg, were right of his experience at Libya Prison at Christmas time in 1863. Christmas. At that name, what pleasant visions come thronging to the prisoner's mind? Vision of hearth and home, of mince pies, plum pudding, and bonbons, of Christmas trees, and child laughter, and pretty little rosy mouths, sweeter for the sugar plums, puckering into Christmas kisses. What prison thoughts that laugh at the rebel bars and bayonets go traveling by swift airlines afar off into cozy cottages among the northern snows and over the wide prairies into western homes, north, south, east, and west, over the whole land, fond thoughts, wind with love lightings. The north wind comes reeling in fitful gushes through the iron bars and jingles a sleigh bell in the prisoner's ear and puffs in his pale face with a breath suggestively odorous of eggnog. Christmas Day, a day which made for smiles, not for sighs, for laughter, not for tears, for the hearth, not for the prison. The forms which I pass as I saunter up and down the low, glooming rooms are bowed in thoughts, and their cheeks are pale with their surfeit of it. It seems very cruel, but the loving little arms that are felt twining about the neck, the innocent laughing little faces that will peep out of the shadows with sunbeams in their eyes, the warm hands which grasp ours in spite of us, all these must be thrust aside, and the welling teardrop in the eye must be brushed away, and tut-tut. What's in a uniform after all if the soldier cannot make his brain as threadbare as its sleeve, nor as hard as hard as its buttons? There's a group in a dusky corner that I can see from here, some of them singing, playing Home Sweet Home on a violin. It's a very dismal affair, this group. The faces are all sad. No wonder for the tune is telling them strange, wild things. There are whispering voices in its notes. I see that one by one the figures stroll away, and that they all seem to have discovered something of unusual interest to look at out of the windows. I invited today to a Christmas dinner. Good. There is not much inducement left for phantasmal visitations after a hearty meal. When I say I'm invited out, I mean over there, in the northeast corner of the room. I shave my face and comb my hair this morning for the occasion. I am promised a white china plate to eat from. When I arrived at the northeast corner, I inquire after my host, who is not present. I am informed that he is down in the kitchen, stewing the mutton. There he comes, in a violent perspiration, with a skill in one hand and a teapot in the other. There are four of us. The dinner is excellent. I have never tasted a better, even at the maize doree. The wine, not very choice, of course but it is down the bell affair. Eau de James, Cour de Bleu. And I very much apologize for my French there, of course, but he's uh, actually w making fun of the fact that he's drinking uh, water from the James River, which 
maybe back then it would have been cool, but uh, I might be refraining from doing that just just today. So there is not very much to the meal in which Cavada is going to eat. And of course, they're making do with very little. But the, the tone is there that you're being a prisoner of war. You'd obviously rather not be a prisoner of war. So you want to make sure you can uh, have the opportunity to, to go back home. Well, maybe not the heavy campaigning we saw in 1862. In 1863, there was really not a whole lot to be relaxed about. At this point in the war, we've been going for some time. Although there had been a headway toward the conclusion, as we will soon discuss, there really was no end in sight. Having fought several battles already, veteran troops would reflect. While some soldiers managed in 1863 to eat well, there were more common celebrations at the time. One soldier writing, Can't very quiet. Our dinner consisted of some soldier bread and black rice and a piece of salted beef about two inches square. The beef not being worth dividing, we cast lots for it. John Lewis Berkeley won and ate it. The rest of us, five in number, ate our rice and bread. The Hardy Boys and George Bray got a little merry about dark. A little Applejack had gone into camp. While every experience was different, the accounts you read of Christmas by 1863 seemed to be more subdued. With just the sheer amount of losses and potential for continued devastation of manpower in the countryside, then there is no wonder. While we can look into more accounts from 1864 and beyond, we will pause there, having a good feeling for the holiday and some first-hand accounts. And now to close out, as is our tradition, we need to reflect back on 1863. Cue maybe an acoustic rendition of Old Lang Son, while we wax poetic about the last year. Now, I have not hid the fact that I think 1862's autumn was the best chance for the Confederacy to win the war, and thus really 1863 should have been a foregone conclusion, but not so. Now, we have fought the two bloodiest battles of the war in Gettysburg and Chickamauga. Of course, there is still resolve on both sides to keep fighting the good fight, although there has been some grumblings from the population on either side of the Mason-Dixon line. Vicksburg has fallen, and Grant has officially cemented his position as being the guy for Abe Lincoln. Lee had maybe his biggest victory that is not followed up at Gettysburg or the subsequent campaigning. Bragg finally gets a W, but he botches Chattanooga, which really, even in the face of the Atlanta campaign, is going to mean that the Army of Tennessee is not going to be the same. Rosecrans went from perhaps the best general in the process to a disgrace of sorts, which is not helped by post-war writing of Grant and Sherman, who tried to downplay the achievements and contributions of others. Jackson has died, which may or may not have been a real blow to the Confederacy, maybe in terms of morale when compared to actual battlefield achievement. We have the introduction of black regiments into combat officially, despite that affair at Island Mound we talked about a while back. Likewise, we had the escalation of guerrilla action into one of the more famous events, which is tough to say just how big of a massacre it really was. Lincoln also starts to lay out what Reconstruction is going to look like, which unfortunately he is not going to be able to oversee. 
But here is the bottom line. It was 1863 a nail in the coffin of the Confederacy and the soaring victory for the Union? The answer to both is no. Certainly, there were more battlefield successes for the North, but there were missed opportunities for the Confederacy that could have turned the tide. In addition, Lee is going to be able to fight effectively soon at the Wilderness, and Joseph E. Johnson is going to at least be able to have a chance in the Atlanta campaign, which, spoiler alert, he's actually going to have to turn things over to John Bell Hood, so that's going to tell you exactly how that goes. Union forces likewise also had chances that went unfulfilled that could have expedited the end of the war, whether it was Rosecrans or Meade. While maybe the out-and-out -out defense of their homeland is off the table, Confederates still had hope that the elections of 1864 would turn things over to someone who would be less agreeable to continuing the war. It's actually a familiar face in George B. McClellan, so stay tuned for that. And so I bid everyone an adieu for now. We talked about cavalry action at Mossy Creek in Tennessee, mentioned what Christmas was like during the war, and also briefly reflected on 1863 as a whole. Once again, we wish everyone a very happy holiday. Next week, we'll welcome in 1864 and also talk about Patrick Claiborne in a controversial written statement. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website as well as Patreon information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week. <laughs>